Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. The outcome from the next uh, COP in Glasgow will be really important that there is a global consensus. We're all going to try together to move towards this net zero because a muddled outcome would be very problematic. If you make an investment decision now, you make a decision for 30 or 40 years. You need to have that certainty. And then, of course, we still need to innovate, but we need a more systemic approach to innovation. Not only think of it as an R&D project, but to make sure that the market design is right, to make sure that new business models are allowed. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to the latest episode of Energy Unplugged. I'm Richard Howard, the Research Director at Aurora. In this episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dolph Geelan, who is an energy technology expert with 20 years experience working across several different international energy organisations. He was for seven years at the International Energy Agency, working on energy technology scenarios, then worked at UNIDO, the Industrial Development Organisation, Um, looking at energy efficiency and most recently has spent over 10 years at IRENA um, focusing on innovation and technology running IRENA's uh, Innovation and Technology Centre in Bonn where he looks at energy planning scenarios and the energy transition. Welcome Dolph. Yeah pleasure to join Richard. Thank you. Uh, So the context for um, our discussion really is uh, the World Energy Transition Outlook uh, publication, which you have have just published. It's one of the the flagship publications uh, that your organization um, produces, uh, which, as I understand it, um, sets out a a pathway for how we can get to to one and a half degrees. Uh, You've just um, published this document. Um, I wondered if you could kick off just by saying a few words to summarise what the report is about. What do you hope it will contribute to the debate on the overall energy transition? Yeah, so uh, we, we've been doing a scenario analysis for some time. And, and in the past years, we've issued two degrees scenarios. But this is the first time we issue a one and a half degree scenario. So that means net zero by 2050 in terms of CO2 emissions. And uh, that means you need to decarbonize the whole uh, power supply and the whole uh, 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 energy demand as well. The the good news is we think it's uh, technically and economically feasible. And uh, we find that uh, renewables, energy efficiency and electrification with even more renewables uh, are, are the three key components. Okay. So overall, 
you think it's possible, technically possible, economically possible to hit that hit that pathway, keep global warming to 1.5 um, degrees. That's the, the overall punchline. Um, uh, yes, but of course. But of course, <laughs> I mean, lots of buts. If, 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 if you look at well, what needs to be done by 2030, it's, it's pretty daunting. Huh? Okay, okay. Well, let's, I think that it would be great if we can dig into that. Um, so to think about what's needed to make it happen, both from the technology perspective, pure technology perspective, but also sort of, enabling policies market frameworks all those other things that would actually bring uh, that scenario to to fruition if, if that's possible maybe if we can start um i suppose the not the easy bit but the easier bit <laughs> if we start with the uh, the power sector and then we can come back on to to that the really difficult bits like um like industry and heating and so forth but uh, so what's the overall story for power i guess you you've said a few bits already but renewables energy efficiency um, and then thinking about the flexibility requirements. I mean, this is this is sort of what I end up in my role thinking a lot about as well. I suppose maybe if we start on the renewables side, um, I guess the key question becomes how low can the renewables costs get? Have we Are we nearing the end of the cost reductions we see for renewables? Or in your view, is there still a long way to go? Well, we, we track these uh, costs uh, very closely and also the, the uh, cost reduction uh, uh, for, for the coming years. And we, we just issued our new costing report and we found that in, in 2020, the costs declined again for solar PV and for wind, somewhere between uh, 7 and uh, 16%, uh, which is quite significant, global mm-hmm. average cost. Um, we also find that if you look at the, the um, uh, results of the auctions for, for projects that will come on stream in the coming years, they show even lower cost. So mm. the, the cost reduction uh, will continue. And we also did some, some analysis of the, the longer term trends for learning uh, curve analysis. And we, and we find that especially for solar PV, the, uh, the learning rates are, are amazing, between 30 and 35% uh, for each doubling of installed capacity. So but based on, on what we know now, we uh, think that the cost reduction will continue. Uh, and uh, we see even uh, opportunities for, for very low cost solar PV and, and wind uh, below uh, two cents per kilowatt hour longer term. Is that a costing within Europe or is that uh, particular geographies there for those very low costings? Well, I mean, the, 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 the latest numbers we've seen for the Middle East for solar PV, for example, are already below that level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the lowest cost uh, uh, wind projects we see uh, around the world are also at two cents per kilowatt hour or even lower. So... Uh, in in the very best locations, we are already there, but it's the global averages are still a bit higher. So for for wind onshore wind, they're around four cents per kilowatt hour. For uh, the solar PV, there are five to six cents per kilowatt hour. So there's still some way to go, but uh, in in good locations in Europe, we think we can also get to these levels. Yeah, yeah. One topic that always strikes me gets relatively little attention is the idea of um, so you say that there's locations that have the very lowest costs and um, 
what I what doesn't seem to be a big part of the debate is about whether we can harness that and actually transfer that as electricity over longer distances. So thinking about long distance interconnection. So from from analysis I've done, there has been a trend towards deployment of longer and longer cables over time. So you now you know cables of hundreds of kilometers is is perfectly feasible. But do you see a trend towards and even even longer sort of power cable linkages joining up literally across across continents. So, for example, Europe making um, better use of renewable resources in, for example, North Africa. Do you think that's a direction of travel, or will the geopolitics make that difficult? Well, I mean, from a from a technical perspective, uh, the most uh, impressive projects in recent years have been in, in China. Uh, where uh, indeed uh, power is transported over two, three thousand kilometers. Uh, so, so technically, that's that's feasible. Uh, I mean, we have underwater cables of five hundred kilometers or even longer. So, also that that uh, uh, can be uh, done. Um, it's uh, the the idea of of producing electricity in in North Africa and and transporting it to Europe was on the agenda, let's say, about 15 years ago or so. Uh, in the end, it has not happened because the, the cost of, of generation have come down so fast that it was, mm. in fact, even cheaper to, to produce in, in, in Europe. W- w- what is now uh, on the agenda is, for example, um, uh, the, the transportation of, of green hydrogen yeah. produced with renewable electricity. Uh, what, one of the advantages is that uh, uh, the, the planning of a pipeline is still a little bit easier than the planning of an, an uh, uh, electricity uh, transmission line. Uh, so uh, it, it will be interesting to see how that develops. But it's clear we're going to need a lot, a lot of renewable electricity. Yeah. And, and it's also likely that trade will, will increase. Yeah, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to need an awful lot of renewables that's very clear in my mind um, as well. Um, but to me, the challenge becomes, okay, the renewables will be very cheap, um, but how are we going to integrate that that huge volume of renewables into the system and, and make a system that delivers also security of, of supply? So h- how do we deal with the need for um, flexibility? What sorts of technologies will be providing that flexibility, in your view, in a, in a net zero, rapidly decarbonizing world? Yeah, so, so for sure we need to make uh, uh, sure that, that the lights stay on, so, so mm-hmm. that, that uh, uh, supply meets uh, demand uh, at all times. And uh, the, 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 you can do that by geographical spread of the supply. Uh, you can do that by mixing various uh, supply options. Uh, and uh, you can do that also by, by a lot of adjustments on the demand side. For example, mm-hmm. charge your electric vehicle when the sun shines or the wind blows, and so on. the the the, uh, the challenge becomes a bit when you go into a seasonal uh, uh, type of issues. Yes. So, so for example, if you have a massive oversupply of solar PV in in future summers, then you 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 may think of making hydrogen with that if the electrolyzer cost is, is, is low enough and store that hydrogen for the winter. Uh, so, uh, but that's, that's a little bit further out. Most countries are not yet uh, at that point where it plays an, 
a major role. So we were talking more currently the flexibility issues at the time scale of uh, hours or days yeah. uh, where, where other options come into play. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose within a lot of the analysis we do at Aurora, we see a growing use of, of lithium-ion batteries, sort of current technology. Okay, it's getting cheaper. The duration's gone from half an hour up towards two hours already, and it could go to four hours. That's that's fine. That's happening in lots of places in Australia, in California, in in the UK, in Ireland. Lots of places are doing that. Um, to me, so it's very important to have that, and batteries can be very useful for short-term balancing, frequency response, and so on. But the more difficult problem is is kind of what you started to allude to, which is the seasonal issue. And to me, the exam question becomes really what to do in what the Germans call the kalte Dunkelflaute situation. So the the cold, dark doldrums. And um, for anyone who doesn't know the term, um. How do we keep the lights on there? So you you describe a world of, of abundant, cheap wind and solar, fine. But what happens when it's dark, so there's no solar, it's windless or very low wind, it's cold and we're reliant on electric heating. Um, what What's keeping the lights on at that point, in your view? Yes, yeah, so, so probably it will be a, a mix of things. Um, I, I mean, already today... Uh, the, the, the EU countries have an condition that they must have capacity for electricity uh, interconnection with neighboring countries in the order of 15% of their uh, generation. So yeah. that, that's, of course, only 15%, but it, it helps. Uh, then um, the, the, the other part, well, you, you will need some form of, of uh, energy that you can store. You could think in, in that context, for example, of uh, biogas or biomethane, yeah. uh, which is not different from, from regular natural gas uh, if it's biomethane. So, so we know how to store natural yeah. gas. I mean, that, that's, that's done today. Uh, and uh, then uh, for hydrogen, so hydrogen storage projects are currently uh, uh, starting. So mm. uh, th th that's another option. The, the, um, the challenge there is that uh, at the moment, green hydrogen is still a, a little bit expensive. Yeah. It's clearly more expensive than gray hydrogen, but the costs are coming down rapidly. And uh, of course, the, the overall efficiency of first producing green hydrogen and then converting it again to electricity is also, we're talking maximum 50% or something in that order. So it's, it's, it's purely from an energy perspective, not where you would like to start with the transition. No, it's what no. you lose for the last quarter. Huh? Yeah. So, I mean, I see, I see it, this can all play a role. And, and indeed, there's a huge interest in, in the green hydrogen and also blue hydrogen as well. I just, the thing I always come back to question is, it is just this problem of um, of what keeps the lights on, and you know Europe is shedding a lot of coal capacity as it as it should do to to reduce emissions. It will need to shed a lot of the gas capacity as well. I think what makes it quite difficult in certain countries, certain geographies, is um, the lack of interest or, or willingness um, to think about CCS, um, which would otherwise enable those um, those thermal capacities to continue to to play a role. Um, 
So that in certain places like Germany, take, take as an example, CCS is off the agenda, nuclear is off the agenda as well, clearly. Um, it just seems like a very difficult um, overall um, nut to crack, a really difficult problem um, to make sure that the, the lights will stay on. You mentioned the interconnectors, but this is, to some extent is uh, moving the problem around and uh, each country is assuming that it's going to be reliant on its neighbours, but it's a bit of a zero-sum game. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, maybe... Maybe I well, may be pushing you hard on this point, but um, it's a really difficult question maybe to which nobody has a, a really clear answer now, but it seems to me to be a clear space where um, a lot of technology development needs to happen to, to fix these, uh, to overcome these challenges and, and fix the problems. And um, I suppose as we start to talk about um, CCS, we could probably move on um, uh, to talk about industry um, and indeed, we've, we've mentioned hydrogen. We, we can also bring heating into uh, into the debate a, a bit as well. What, overall, what what do you uh, within your report? Um, what's the overall um, sort of outlook for for how to decarbonize those really hard to to abate sectors such as as heating and, and industry? In your view, what are the essential technologies? Yeah, so so they're quite distinct. The the bulk of heating demand is for buildings, and there's clearly a number one effort needed for building energy efficiency, retrofit of buildings, existing buildings. That is, especially in a European context, uh, top uh, top priority, and it's not so easy. Um, Once you've done that, uh, you can go a long way with heat pumps. So... Um, the, the industry sectors are quite different. Um, f- first of all, there's, there's, of course, a lot of small and medium enterprises and service yeah. sector industries. That, that's not the issue. The issue is the energy-intensive industries. So we're talking iron and steel, chemical and petrochemical, cement. These, these are some of the main ones. Um, and uh, they're all quite distinct they are, there is not a one-fits-all solution. Yeah. Uh, electrification with renewables can play a role. Hydrogen can play a role. CCS will also be important. So uh, the, 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 the key challenge there I see is that uh, all of this is still relatively early days and we need very fast progress in the coming years. Yeah. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you because... I see so much talk about CCS and so little actual action. <laughs> In, just to take a UK example, we've been talking about a first large-scale CCS project for, I've actually forgotten how long it's been, but more than a decade. There's been several different um, government-led commercialization projects, which so far led to, to nothing, no, no actual significant projects. It's still, everyone thinks it's a great idea, but... What happens if it's too slow? What happens if it fails and we we don't get CCS at scale? Does that make the industrial uh, decarbonisation story just impossible to get to in the timescales that it needs? Well, I mean, in our analysis, uh, CCS uh, accounts for about a third of what needs to be done in industry. Okay. So uh, let's say if, if, if it doesn't happen in the next uh, five years, uh, we, we still have so, some time left and, and we can certainly start with uh, uh, electrifying and, and, and uh, ramping up hydrogen use. 
and and we think also biomass and biomass feedstocks, for example, can can play an important role in in uh, say in, in in cement kilns. It's a proven technology to use residues or or in in bioplastics. So um, the the uh, but but longer term, uh, we're gonna need also some 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 CCS and even some biomass CCS uh, in industrial processes if we really want net zero. Yeah. Do you think that, given that you say it's needed, do you think the policy in certain German states um, that it's very against CCS, do you think this is tenable? Can they keep their position or will they need to change? Well, um, they're against the CCS use in, uh, in Germany, but I haven't heard that they're against importing blue hydrogen, for example. So, Yeah, it's an interesting position. Um, yeah, I mean, another challenge I see with all of this is, um, like, there's so much talk about hydrogen, so much interest, but you start to think about the scale. If everyone uses hydrogen in the way that people are talking about, you're talk- just in Europe, you're talking about thousands of terawatt hours of, of hydrogen. Um, and you start to question if that's all green hydrogen coming from renewables. That's a, that's a lot of renewables. Um, if the policies is very much against blue hydrogen, then that becomes um, potentially quite difficult to imagine. Um, we could be we could be importing it, but then other countries will will have a need for um, hydrogen and and low carbon fuels of of their own. So that that's another area I point to again. Not clear answers. I'm not necessarily pushing you for a, an answer specifically, but um, seems to be a real uh, a real challenge. Um, Okay, so one of the things that you, uh, or sort of a thread running through this conversation is that things need to start happening quite quickly. Um, You you talked about actions needed by 2030, uh, and I think that's a useful marker in the sand. I suppose if you you ran energy policy, if you were in charge of, um, either at European level, maybe global level, um, and you could change uh, some things, some policies to move along these enabling technologies and and move uh, and create enabling policies. If you had to pick two or three things, what would those things be? Yeah, so so uh, a credible long term uh, CO two price is is really important for investments in in uh, in the power sector and also in the industry sector and to get the infrastructure going so so and and probably we're going to need between 50 and 100 uh, dollars or euros per ton something in that that order of magnitude um and 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 it's not only a price today you you really need to have a certainty that it stays at that level uh, yeah. uh, going going forward so that that is one uh, one aspect um i think second uh, the outcome from uh, the next uh, COP in Glasgow will be really important that there is a global consensus. We're all going to try together to move towards this net zero uh, because a, a muddled outcome uh, uh, would be very problematic. For, for Again, if you make an, an investment decision now, you make a decision for, for 30 or 40 years. So mm. you need to have that, that uh, certainty and then, of course, uh, uh, we still need to innovate, but we need a more systemic approach to innovation. Not only think of it as, as an R&D project, 
but to make sure that the market uh, design is right, to make sure that, that new business models are allowed, etc. Yeah, no, I'd agree with all, all three of those. I suppose one one additional one, or maybe it's a sub point of the third one, it seems to me it's in, incredibly important on the power side to harness the demand side. The demand is so, in the way that power markets have been designed to date, the sort of traditional top-down design of power markets is almost ignores the demand side. It, it takes it as fixed in the short term, just assumes demand is demand, and it can't is un, unchanged. Um, obviously, there's innovation going on. There's smart EVs, there's time-of-use tariffs, but it seems to me this is a key area where market design needs to um, to evolve and then business models can crop up around that to really push that demand side response, whether it's electric heating, electric cars, all, all these things. Do you see examples of best practice on that around the world? Yeah, I mean, as you say, that there is, um, there is uh, uh, let's say, progressive areas where uh, prices reflect scarcity in space or, or in time. So that, that is very important, but the uptake needs to grow significantly of, of such models. Uh, and maybe there's a need to ban the traditional uh, flat rate uh, uh, models to, to, to incentivize that a bit. And, and, and once you have that, uh, I mean, I, industry, if I talk to the industry players, they say, look, uh, if electricity is free, we're happy to use it for, <laughs> to heat our processes. So, so uh, uh, they, they, there, is, there is interest to look what you can do with that. And, and I, as you say, I mean, a lot more can be done on the, on the demand side. For the, for the, the, the uh, uh, individual households, what will probably become important is this vehicle to, to grid uh, concept. Yeah. So uh, uh, I think in ten years we all have an electric car, and uh, if you can make some 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 if you can create some revenues from that, uh, would I think be make a big difference. Yeah, and to me, one of the important things is to normalize that behavior. So when someone buys an electric car for the first time, as many people will do in the next five or ten years, it's already the normal thing that you have smart charging and you might be thinking about vehicle to grid. It's not something that you think about later in 10 or 15 years when the market design catches up. The market design, we need that now so that the first the first early adopters, well, even the very first, they're already there, but the next wave of people already understand smart and then they tell all their friends about it and that just becomes totally normal that your car is charging itself um, at times when it's, it's best for you. I think that's that's the kind of mentality we need around this. Otherwise, the battle's kind of already lost. Yeah. And what do you? I know that another thing you think about is what all of this means for fossil fuel markets and fossil fuel production. And um, I know that that's that's a topic that is covered within your analysis. So I don't know. Just to put some questions around that, um, some fairly pointed ones. When do you think we'll start to see a? a crash in the price of coal would be one sort of trajectory you might foreshadow and um, and a, a, another one is is more around gas so almost the flip side do you think with gas playing more of a role as a transition fuel do you think there's actually that will prop up the demand and price of gas for some time to come what are your views on this well the the um I mean, if you look at the, the, the three fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas, they are, um, they, they, their price profile is quite different. So the, 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 the revenue margin on coal is, is generally much smaller than on oil and gas. 
So that that makes that uh, uh, I mean the the, the We've seen some some price spikes, especially in in, in coking coal, but um, I don't think that the the, the coal prices will uh, crash. But um, because the, 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 then there there would be no incentive to to produce. It, it's a different story for uh, especially oil, where there is a significant uh, margin between the price and the marginal production cost. Um, the uh, it's likely that that the the uh, prices will become more uh, uh, will start to fluctuate more as as uh, that balance becomes more more uh, changes and and um, the um, let's say the the the, the uh, whether gas prices uh, will see a, a major peak, I don't expect so. And the reason being that overall gas demand in all recent projections I have seen for one and a half degrees will decline. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so it, it's really, it becomes an, an, uh, an uh, buyer's market. Yeah, I mean, I think in the analysis, we've, we've done two degree scenarios in Aurora. We haven't yet done a 1.5, but even in a two degree world, the demand for all three of these commodities is is plummeting over the over the horizon That if you're getting um, on trajectory for two degrees. And so it, in some sense, it's a matter of time before you see that downward pressure on price in our modeling we saw more price support on the gas side, and whereas we saw oil and coal and um, prices coming down much sooner. And kind of one of the interesting things from our analysis was just how on the oil and gas side, the implication of all of this would be in a two degree world or a 1.5 degree world, we've already discovered all the all the oil and gas and, and coal that is needed in, in that scenario ever. And um, so it calls into question actually quite a lot of policy um, decisions. So, for example, the UK government says it wants to continue uh, licensing oil and gas fields. You just think, well, okay, <laughs> if we're if we're serious about this two degree world, is that uh, is that production ever going to take place? I, I think this it, it begs some uh, begs some really big questions about the direction of of policy. Okay, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, and Dov, um, I'm going to end with. Um, a section where, uh, which we call overrated or underrated, where I'm going to ask you about three different energy technologies. And I want your immediate response, your off-the-cuff response. Are these technologies overrated or underrated? Um, so let's start with negative emissions technologies, BECs and DACs. Do you think they're overrated or underrated? Uh, BECs underrated, DACs overrated. Okay. Brilliant. Um, are you able to say why? Could we unpack this? Uh, because the the, the cost uh, profile is very different, but uh, it's fair to say on 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 biomass right now there is um, 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 a very um, very politicized uh, debate on on whether biomass needs to be part of it. We think biomass needs to be part of the solution. Okay. But not DAX. Why? Because it's too expensive, or because it's a kind of last resort type solution? Yeah, more the latter. Uh, okay. Too expensive right now, and 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 the scale at which we're applying it now, uh, it's, it will take time to grow. 
Yeah, and maybe if there's too much emphasis on it, then you fail to do lots of other things that you should have done, which were probably cheaper. Right. Kind of thing. Okay, brilliant. And next one then, long duration storage. Uh, of electricity. Yes. We're talking here. So yes. uh, it's, uh, well, as storage as electricity difficult in another form, such as hydrogen, as we discussed, yes. Brilliant. So underrated on the uh, other forms, hydrogen, right. ammonia, so forth. Okay. Yeah, good. I totally agree with you. Um, oh, actually, my third one was going to be green hydrogen, the third one on my list, but you've kind of got there already. Green hydrogen specifically. Renewables derived hydrogen, underrated or overrated? Well, as, as you will have no noted from my comments throughout, uh, we are big believers in green hydrogen. <laughs> Uh, but it's fair to say, I mean, we, we are starting from uh, 300 uh, megawatts electrolyzers and we need 5,000 gigawatts of electrolyzers. So there's a long yeah. way to go. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge number, isn't it? I've heard this number. Um, so to, you're saying the current installed capacity is 300 megawatts. That's that's roughly the number we came to as well. And then your projection is of the need is 5,000 gigawatts by when? 2050. Wow, that's huge. So we, we did some analysis and identified a 200 gigawatt plus pipeline of projects, not not built, not even being built, but um, talked about, I, I think is probably the right way to put it. 200 gigawatts of projects in development, but you're actually talking about another 25 times higher, more than that. Well, wow, that's, that's just huge, isn't it? It's, uh, it's uh, very significant. It's, it's a great... Uh... I mean, think about it. We, we, three years ago, we were not talking about hydrogen. No, it's it's, it's, suddenly, it's at the center of the debate. It's a very dynamic field. It's, it's, it's what you say. I mean, the, the, the 200 gigawatt number is, is, is very encouraging. But if you look at, at, for example, the announcement in Australia in recent uh, uh, weeks, not so good. A number of very big plans uh, uh, have been... Uh, well, let's say the policy response, the political response was, was not so positive. On the other hand, Kazakhstan and the major new announcement. So it, it, it's still early days, big yeah. plans, but let's see what, what really comes to fruition. And people talk about the cost coming down to $2 and eventually to $1 per kilogram. Do you think we'll get there? I think uh, we will get there. And, and the, the basis of that is uh, cheap, renewable electricity. And, and of that, we're certain. Yeah, yeah. The bit that we've been looking into in a bit more detail without um, stealing our own, own thunder too much uh, for a forthcoming report is really thinking about the optimal uh, business models for those electrolyzers and how you optimize um, the sizing of the electrolyzer versus the renewables, whether you need a grid connection or not to complement those are some of the really interesting nuance points, which I think will be a source of a lot more uh, analysis by probably by Aurora, Irina, many other people as well uh, in the coming years as this uh, as this hydrogen thing uh, comes to fruition. Anyway, Dolph, it's been brilliant talking to you and um, clearly very knowledgeable on all of this subject. Um, we've got lot, lots more to read in your Outlook report, um, which has just um, been published. Um, so I'm sure listeners will be doing that as well, digging out that document and having a, a read through. Uh, but thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Richard. I enjoyed this discussion. That was Aurora's Research Director, Richard Howard, talking to Dolph Geelan, Director of Irena's Innovation and Technology Centre. 
Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.